Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Simon Karg. I'm a student assistant at the German Institute for Global and Area Studies and recently completed my master's in human rights studies at Lund University in Sweden. Today, I'm joined by two guests to discuss a recently published volume named Global India, the Pursuit of Influence and Status. If you follow research on South Asia and rising great powers, you must have heard the name of our first guest. Chris Ogden is senior lecturer and associate professor in Asian security at the School of International Relations within the University of St. Andrews. His research analyzes uh, the relationship between national identity, security and domestic politics in South Asia primarily in India and East Asia, primarily in China, as well as the rise of great powers, authoritarianism in global politics and China's coming world order. Chris is also concerned with the role of norms and identity in international relations and the analytical uses of social psychology. In 2018, Chris founded the European Scholars of South Asian International Relations Research Network. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me. Our second guest, and full disclosure, still my boss, is working on the exciting intersection between future politics, environmentalism, and statuses of power, primarily related to India. Uh, Miriam Presansen is lead research fellow and head of the research program Global Orders and Foreign Policies at the German Institute for Global and Area Studies. Within her work, Miriam focuses on regional and emerging powers, such as the BRICS states, as well as global and regional environmental politics and the global climate regime. Miriam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, also thanks for having me. Today's episode is dedicated to the mentioned volume that Chris edited and Miriam contributed a chapter to. It was published by Routledge in 2023 and traces India's role in geopolitics as well as underlying interests and principles structuring it. Thereby, the book unpacks India's identity in various areas of policymaking on national, regional and global levels and provides explanations for the rise of Hindu nationalism under the ruling BJP party and Prime Minister Narendra Modi. To start our conversation, I would be interested in how the idea of the volume and its realization came about. And this is dedicated to both of you, Chris and Miriam. All the contributions to this volume um, stem from the first two um, European Scholars of South Asian International Relations conferences. And really, they came together because there was a realization, first of all, about the quality of the work, but also the range of issues that were being covered and direct interest uh, from the publisher, um, somebody at Routledge. And also an understanding that really there were new dimensions being opened up and thought about in terms of Indian foreign policy. India's status is growing. As part of that status, it wants more and more influence. And there are these other extra dimensions, new dimensions, say, with Russia, with France, um, new dimensions in the Indo-Pacific, new dimensions concerning COVID, concerning um, the environment. And really beyond that, it was also an attempt to try and bring together established scholars, but also very new scholars. So in the, in the volume, you'll find that there are people who've been doing this for a decade, two decades, but also others who have just finished their PhD. So it was really kind of trying to enable some kind of platform to celebrate that that work, bring it all together into a coherent volume um, and, pre and present that as widely as possible. 
Yeah, I don't have much uh, to add to this. I uh, joined the conference, I think the first year as a discussant, and I had such a great experience there. Uh, I had actually presented the paper, uh, which has now turned into this chapter at the second conference. And I think uh, in terms of India research, which just at a very exciting and important time. And so this uh, to to connect uh, climate change, which was my my own chapter, to the other issue areas and see how identity moves or stays uh, stable um, in, in India's rise. It's just a very interesting endeavor and was very good to contribute to the volume and actually meet also the other, other authors, for example, at conferences where we also have presented parts of the book. Great. Thank you very much for the opening explanations. Chris, uh, 2023 will also be known as the year in which India overtook the UK as the world's fifth largest economy in terms of GDP and uh, equally surpassed China in numbers of total population. How are India's rise within what the book refers to as the Asian 21st century and its identity structuring its international actions? So I think I think the biggest thing really for India now is, is that it's gaining prominence and importance in international affairs. You've already mentioned the, the economic side of things. There's lots of manufacturing moving towards India. India now has the world's largest or the world largest growing uh, GDP um, uh, percentage growth figures year on year, outstripping China. It's even pulling investment away from China. Strategically, it's also become increasingly important for the West to balance out against the very uh, kind of rising, more kind of bombastic China within the Indo-Pacific region. And suddenly, I think the kind of importance of India on all these different levels and its emergence as a great power have all kind of locked into place. I think the, the kind of narrative about India has changed quite a lot. It's a lot more prominent, a lot more useful strategically, and a lot more kind of um, necessary. And then within that, thinking about the Asian 21st century, which is that most power is going to be in Asia, coming from Asia, economic, military, but also diplomatically, is that India will be a core pillar of that century along with China, uh, maybe along uh, with Japan. And then finally, beyond that, I think its identity is very important to understand. And this was a key motivation for the book, really. First of all, to say India is not like other states. India comes with its own historical background, precedence, baggage, its own understandings of the international system. I think one really big understanding in the book is that it's a post-colonial state. It has experienced international politics in a very different way than other states have done, um, certainly Western great powers. And beyond that, also thinking about the influence of the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party, their Hindu nationalism, the leadership of Narendra Modi, and the kind of tone that that brings to Indian foreign policy, which often is more of a, a more of a kind of direct foreign policy, a more assertive foreign policy, but also has this kind of Hindu nationalist tinge, very much about promoting India, promoting India as this large international force. And again, I would say this has made Indian foreign policy much more um, proactive, more kind of forward-looking, um, and probably m much more distinctive than it has been in previous decades. Miriam, in your book chapter, you focus ex extensively on India's climate futures. What are India's self-image and actions, taking into account the circumstances mentioned with regard to international climate policy? 
Yeah, um, I think everything that Chris has just said equally applies in, in the climate change area. So first, the gaining of prominence is very important. Um, India is not like any other state. And the fact that it has moved through quite a range of roles in in at the global stage, but specifically in the in the climate change arena is very important and very interesting to study. So whereas previously um, India's climate policy at the international level was uh, described as sort of a growth first, we have the right to develop um, and also the shifting of responsibilities uh, to the developed nations was very, very prominent and has basically shaped India's international climate policies for the past 30 years. We now have moved into a situation where this is no longer feasible, but it still is an important part of the mix. So um, India is playing its multiple identities. So as a developing state, as a as a global leader uh, from the south, very well in the in the climate change issue, and this is also reflected in the kind of actions it's taken. So on the one hand, it's taken on a prominent role in the so-called international solar alliance. Uh, where it's um, um, promoting South-South cooperation in terms of uh, this, the spread of, of solar technologies. But on the other hand, it's still um, one of the, and you know, rightfully see it, one of those states who's reminding the developed nations that it's their responsibility and it's a, that much of what India is doing is also depending on international climate finance. So it has a lot of facets, which with its rise become more and more uh, interesting, but also hard to combine for the Indian government. Um, and this plays out, for example, that it's doing very different things towards a domestic audience and towards an international audience. I mean, that is one of the results of these multiple identities, I would say. You mentioned the difference between the national audience and the global or regional audience. Um, to follow up on this, how does India's role as a regional and global power manifest itself in climate policy, especially in relation to or in distinction from other states? I mean, what we found in the research for the chapter is that, for example, at the international level, India's climate vulnerabilities aren't really much of a thing. So there, there's a lot of optimism promoted at the international level. So India will play the role as a leader in the move towards renewable energies. India will fulfill all its obligations and so on. This And this sort of optimism is a little bit more muted towards the domestic level, probably because of um, you know the accountabilities for natural disasters that may are likely linked to um, climate change and so on. I mean, interestingly, some of the big floods and, and and shifts in the monsoon patterns are at least in sort of official statements not linked to climate change. So there's sort of a dissociation there from uh, from the threat that climate change is actually um, posing to India at the domestic level. Um, I think India receives a lot of recognition globally. But it's also playing that role very smartly. So um, some of the ambitious, apparently ambitious goals it has set itself aren't at closer look actually as ambitious, but it's, as said, playing the role globally very smartly and receives a lot of, uh, you know, um, applaud for that as well. 
Thank you very much. If you think about more specifically um, about India's general global aspirations and then the global climate regime, are there significant overlaps or differences in India's actions? No, I think uh, India is actually using its global leadership role in climate change or as it protects itself to achieve more diplomatic clout in, in other fields as well, as well. So I think this is very much going hand in hand. And, and I would add to that as well. I think one big thing about contemporary India is a degree of self-confidence, but also I would say strategic kind of sophistication and flexibility. Mm. So in the sense that it, in these negotiations that Miriam has been mentioning, India can pander to the developed world, the existing great powers, right? It's just a responsible stakeholder, it's taking action. But it can also pander to the developing world, global south, saying, we understand where you're at in terms of development, modernization. We understand the pathway that you want. And India is very well positioned in between the two as a transitioning state. But also, I think its leaders are adept enough of understanding the advantages of both sides. And I think this definitely points to, on a wider scale, something about India becoming a great power, that kind of proactiveness, again, that kind of agility, that flexibility, that, that kind of a skill, you know. If you think about India's approach um, in, in terms of different levels, how would you say is that approach assessed domestically, regionally and on the world stage by different actors and states? So I think in some ways this builds upon that kind of specific example before. I think definitely Narendra Modi is a leader who wants to be a, a global states person. And certainly sometimes he's been criticised in, in his first term often people in india would say where's modi he's not here he's striding around the world but i think that striding around the world was saying to the rest of the world india's open for business india is amenable india can be the kind of strategic partner that you need and that again has raised india's profile and made it more kind of necessary in lots of different ways and now domestically i think the domestic population looks at Modi and says, you really are delivering on the things you said you would deliver. You are making us more prominent internationally. One thing that's not covered in this book, because it's only just started this year, is, say, India's presidency of the G20. That is bringing a lot of pride, a lot of confidence uh, for Indian elites and the population. And I think that's appreciated by the population. And then on the world stage, it's kind of replicated by India taking more of a, a, more of a leading role. But equally, in a way that I think maybe we saw with China, say, a couple of decades ago and onwards, that India is now within the strategic thinking of other states. What will India do? What will India think about um, environmental degradation? What will it think about global finance? What will it think about um, democracy? And I think that, that that's quite a major change. Regionally, I would say the picture's a bit more mixed. I think certainly India is still seen as this very large power by its very small neighbours. And I think India still needs to walk quite a, a very carefully constructed kind of tightrope in terms of not being too domineering, not being too um, dominant. And this often leads to other frictions. So we mentioned earlier the, the rise of the Asian 21st century. And one key dynamic in that is India and China. And there can be frictions between both sides. India gains more prominence. 
India's been maybe used to balance out against Beijing. So in that sense, it could be a little bit more um, negative. But I think overall, the proactiveness is largely seen um, as a positive. One thing that is still quite telling is that, as least, at least as far as I'm aware of, in the area of climate change or environmental degradation, there is still very, very little regional cooperation, despite actually big incentives to do so. I mean, there's a lot of shared problems, shared coastlines, shared waterways, and all of this is still very strategically used. I mean, now we've had the um, big issues again with the river sharing uh, agreements that have been standing for a long time. But still, I think there is, despite India's um, uh, standing, as Chris has just described it, particularly in this area where, where cooperation should be easy, you can still see all the sort of conventional issues that come in uh, in South Asia with Pakistan, with China, still come in and um, put up massive barriers to fruitful cooperation in areas where it's actually both necessary and, you know, at least in theory, easy in that sense. I would add to that as well. It's just because India is becoming more influential, gaining more status, it doesn't necessarily override the historical difficulties it's had. Mm. Yeah. Particularly with Pakistan, particularly with China, I think there's there's always there's always going to be a bit of frostiness in different ways, and also other dynamics play into it. Kashmir is, is still hugely disputed in lots of different ways between all three of those actors. There've been ongoing border clashes between India and China, some of which in recent years have been exceptionally bloody and awful. Um, and even though they've got lots that they can mutually gain, they've always got their own domestic audiences to play to. So it's positive, but it doesn't solve everything for India. And I think one one extra dimension to also think about is, is that India becomes more prominent, it will become a lot more scrutinized. Other states, other observers, us, other people will be saying, well, what about issue X? What about this other thing? And I think that will lead to more pressure on the Indian polity to either try to resolve those problems or at least have a much more kind of positive narrative about them. I would also be interested in how the volume resonated within certain peer groups and audiences. Um, would you be able and willing to share some feedback, particularly relevant feedback that you received? We asked for quite a few endorsements and there have been quite a few reviews. Uh, what's been really good is that they, they come from a range of different um, voices. And this is also actually an aim of the, the European um, Scholars of South Asian International Relations, also sometimes known as ESIR, is to, is to pull in policymakers and other stakeholders. So it's not all just um, academic. Uh, but for example, one of the endorsers was Ashley Tellis. Um, who is a Chair of Strategic Affairs at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Um, he thought that the volume insight insightfully scrutinises the various dimensions of India's transformations upon Asian global politics, um, highlighting the promises and pitfalls that that marks for India's ascent on the world stage. Um, TV Paul, that some of your other listeners might be aware of, who is the James McGill Professor of International Relations at McGill University, Similarly noted is a well thought through set of 
papers, capturing all the opportunities and constraints that India faces, concerning its long-held aspiration to be a great power um, status. Um, others, such as uh, Rahul Mukherjee, who is the chair of modern politics of South Asia at Heidelberg, also noted that it was a very easy read, very good coverage, very good topicality, uh, rendering it invaluable um, to students. And then finally, other voices kind of closer towards the region, um, such as um, Constantino Javier, who is a fellow at the Centre for Economics, for Social and Economic Progress in New Delhi. Um, he noted um, it's a valuable volume uh, with multiple methodologies, rich case studies that understand the interests, institutions and identities that underpin India's increasingly ambitious foreign policy. So from those, um, highly positive, uh, which is obviously fantastic, uh, particularly for me as the editor. I'm kind of pulling it all together and trying to make it make it all coherent. Um, but also, I think, again, points to the strengths of the volume and the scholarship. Again, that it's not just established scholars, but it's newer scholars. Um, there is even work in here, which is a very new thing for me, of having quantitative um, analysis, which is exceptionally strange for me, because I'm normally the kind of hardcore um, social scientist. And again, I think these, these reviews and kind of, kind of um, endorsements all points to its usefulness to lots of different audiences. So really, I was exceptionally happy. Uh, and I would say um, the publishers were quite happy as well. I will also add one other thing as well. It's, it's quite often like you get endorsements which say this is a timely volume. And kind of everything is always timely. But I think one really interesting thing about this project and about SA more broadly is the support that it kind of just naturally engendered. So when I and Raphael Khan, Nicholas Blarel, we kind of like joined the dots and said, there should be a conference dedicated to South Asian international relations. Why isn't there one? Why is it that we turn up at other conferences and there's one paper about South Asian international relations? Look at India, look at the regional dynamics, look at the wider global dynamics. And when we launched ESSIR, there was this kind of groundswell of real genuine interests lots of different constituencies kind of globally really and that has continued through the various iterations and that is emboldened and kind of underlined by this volume um, and again points to i don't know it kind of india's time has come but even for us as analysts observers some of whom have often been kind of saying things in isolation um i think our kind of time has come as well and i think that that's a great thing about this volume um, now, if the two of you think about the upcoming years and decades, uh, what are important features and tendencies of India's diplomacy, uh, particularly in relation to climate politics, that we should follow in the coming years? I mean, I think one one important uh, point will be India has set itself ambitious goals, like the five pledges put in Glasgow, the net zero goal for um, 2070, but yet... There's not so much how, not so many ideas about how this will be implemented. So I think um, important steps, but I think they're not yet really based uh, or translated into action. So I think this will be uh, an important feature that we need to watch. How is this actually going to be implemented? I mean, it's very clear that without India's firm climate actions, we're never going to reach the Paris goals or, you know, 
towards any safe pathways, as they said. So I think, I mean, when we're talking about EU as global climate leader, the EU needs to engage, I think, much more with India. Um, I think there's a lot of common ground, despite all, uh, you know, divergences maybe on on other issues. Um, I think, I mean, I'm just brainstorming right now, but I think sort of EU-India partnership will be a very important feature of the climate regime, I think. And I think that's that's what what we should watch out for um, as one of the first steps. But then obviously also India's role in South South um, cooperation is probably another big building uh, block of India's climate diplomacy. Um, yeah, I assume Chris probably has a, a few things to add as well in that. Yeah, I mean, I agree on all with all of that, and kind of just building a little bit more is just I think India is going to face the same paradox that China faces, which is mm. certainly in terms of being a great power, the most convertible, translatable kind of power is economic power. But the more that India grows economically, and the more it grows without proper regulation and proper enforcement of environmental controls, the greater the degree it's going to be affected internally by pollution. Mm. And already hundreds of thousands of people die every year because of pollution in India. If you look at the charts for the most polluted cities in the world in terms of air quality, they're nearly all in India. They used to all be in China, but they're all now in India. And, and that is the paradox. You grow, but you pollute. You want to pollute less, you grow less. But then that affects all those wider aspirations. Now, that doesn't mean it's not impossible for India. I think certainly India can be proactive. It can work well with other partners. But those urges, those kind of impulses, particularly for a domestic audience, if, you, if you're young in India, you know, you want to be part of the Indian success story. You want a job, et cetera, et cetera. You want the kind of fruits of capitalism. I think it, it needs some kind of balanced and quite a sophisticated approach to meet those goals and therefore meet the goals of the world. And then beyond that, there's just that ongoing paradox for the world and how to deal with this in the Indian context, which is for Western states and more developed states who've kind of passed through industrialization, is it fair to say to another state, you're going to have to curtail your, your, your development, your, modern, your rate of modernization. And beyond that, if India were to do that, what would be the impact upon the global economy? There are all these very, very big questions. But again, we can look at the Chinese example and say, well, this is what happened with them. Could we use them as some kind of case study or launching point? But I think it requires sophistication from all sides. And again, as Miriam noted, if India is not on board, these targets will not be reached. That, that's, that is it. So India needs to be on board. We need to understand India better. We need to, again, need to understand the kind of identity, history, where they're coming from, their issues, their problems, their challenges, ambitions a lot better. And I think if we can do that, that has, that has to be a good groundwork for hopefully finding a fruitful way forward. Now to conclude the episode, I'd be interested in your current works or future publications that we can look forward to. Would you like to share some insights with us on what you're currently focusing on? I'm sure I, I can start. I mean, there's, I think for listeners who are interested in this topic, there may be two things that are of relevance. Um, 
One is an article in a special issue actually with TV Paul, edited by TV Paul, on the impact of the Chinese-Indian rivalry on the global climate cooperation. So how I'm interested there, and I've been interested in a long time, about the simultaneity of cooperation and conflict. So how do states manage to cooperate while simultaneously being involved in border clashes? So that's going to be the focus of that paper. Um, the other one uh, on which I'm working with my colleague, uh, Mohamed Farah here at the Degiga, is on actually looking again towards the uh, future imaginaries, uh, but this time in the hydrogen strategies comparatively of India, China, and the EU. So how, seeing that everybody's really hyped about hydrogen, we're, we're looking at what kind of futures are imagined in the hydrogen strategy, and more importantly, how they relate to one another. So, I mean, in these hydrogen strategies, everybody positions uh, itself as uh, as the leader. So how do these different uh, visions of, of leadership interact? What would that mean in terms of infrastructure and so on? So these are the two strands uh, that are probably most relevant for for uh, in relation to the to the volume we're talking about today. They sound fantastic. Really, really stimulating. And, and again, a, a useful, right, to think about like, the kind of visions and then the pursuit of those visions to, and how that links with actual policy, right? Because often that's how policies are sold. Mm -hmm. um, from my side, I've got a piece coming out with um, India Quarterly at the end of the year, which is about um, India's presidency of the G20. Um, I think it has a title of, which is something along the lines of Perceptions, Promotion, and preeminence. I quite like the alliteration, um, but kind of how India is using that role, what it means for India, what it means for its kind of great power rise. Beyond that, I've just finished it, um, an edited book, which is a free ebook actually through Global Policy, uh, which is all about digital repression and the increase in digital repression in states. It does include India a little bit, but really it covers a whole range of states. Um, so Western democracies, autocracies, but how those forms of repression are being used, how they're being used more, um, also touches a little bit upon the role of AI as a may, maybe a way of kind of hypercharging that repression. And then beyond that, and kind of building upon that in the Indian context, I've increasingly been interested in authoritarianism in international politics how this might be the kind of future flavor of a future world order and building upon a previous book called The Authoritarian Century, which was about China, but did include India a little bit. Um, there is an idea to try and maybe write a book um, called India's Authoritarian Impulse, maybe trying to kind of trace that within Indian politics. So not necessarily just now, although the Modi government does show authoritarian proclivities, but also to look back previously under Congress, um, remembering, for example, that Indira Gandhi, when she was prime minister, suspended the whole constitution, put all the opposition leaders in jail, suspended the free media um, in the 1970s. But just trying to try and understand that facet a little bit better um, and linking that to global politics, so China, but you know, authoritarian impulses that are accelerating in Britain and the United States. So um, those are some things I've got on my menu. 
That all sounds very exciting to me, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, listen or read more about that quite soon. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.